cliffcentral.com. I think the risk is always people think you need a lot of money to do something, but actually it's about getting up every morning and doing something that matters. Hi everyone, once again welcome to Market Share. This is where I chat to people who influence the way brands are built, big brands and small, and I'll spend some time on smaller brands as I believe they are the future of South Africa. I will also cover many other interesting marketing and advertising stories. So, what do you do when facing imminent retrenchment from your job and you're the head of innovation? Do you turn to drink or do you use your innovative skills and create your own drinks company? Simon Musgrove did exactly that. Spotting the craft beverage trends early on, Simon's entrepreneurial spirit led her to create Musgrave Premium Spirits, initially specializing in gin. In fact, hers was the first brand to launch a pink gin. In marketing speak, the gins have a unique proposition of 11 African botanicals, and like our 11 official languages, tell their own story. But let's hear hers. Before we talk about your particular journey and your particular story, why don't you give us a little bit of history about gin itself? Well, it's got a, a bit of a, a torrid history, um, and, and it's really one of the oldest spirits spoken about. So I think it, in the 16th century, the, it was called Geneva. And a lot of people think it comes from the UK, but in fact, uh, the Netherlands is where it, this originated. And soldiers in the 30-year their war would use it as a warm shot of courage, hence you may know the term Dutch courage. And it's a really interesting spirit because it was used medicinally and there was a belief by monks that juniper would help chest pains and coughing and, you know, maybe it's something we should have turned to in the last little while. But then it really got its recognition when William III, otherwise known as William of Orange, started a war with the French and blocked all exports of uh, French wine and brandy and cognac. And at the same time, he decided to give the British free reign with no taxes on distilling spirit. So this spirit became cheaper than beer. And so this was a time that everyone went absolutely wild. And it was actually a problem. It caused what was known as mother's ruin. And the, uh, people of the UK became sort of addicted to the spirit and, and really was a problem where prohibition was the next step. So I feel like we have been watching history in action in the last few weeks. Sounds like it. So did the British adopt it as their own? They did. And in fact, the word is that they were too drunk to pronounce the word Geneva. So they said Jen, and then it ended up as the spirit called gin today. And then it really was a bigger problem in the UK than it was anywhere else. And so everyone kind of thinks it comes from there. And how big is gin as a category of drink? I mean, in the spirits category, is it, I know it's grown dramatically over the last uh, few years. Yeah, what's interesting is it's now the third biggest category. Uh, so whiskey's first, brandy, and, and then gin. And, and it, it really has grown. I think in the UK, it's grown at something like 500% in the last few years. And we've seen similar growth in, in all countries, in fact. Um, the biggest gin-drinking countries, the Philippines after that, is Spain. And then South Africa has seen a similar kind of trajectory. So it's quite a fascinating story. And I believe it's really because gin can hold so many stories. And in South Africa, when did the gin boom really start? 
It started really when I was pretty much the first. Before me, there was a brand that, uh, in Varasha that had started, and they were really before their time. They had sort of started dabbling four years before that. But it didn't really take a foothold until about 2015. That was when we saw the sort of explosion happen, and it was steady. I think 2016 was really when we saw things really exploding. And that was in the premium category? Was that with yours one of the first premium gyms? Yes, and I decided to go sort of luxury brand straight away. That was, you know, I'd spent years in, in developing peanut butter, mayonnaise, and chicken uh, in FMCG companies, and I really was uh, wanting to go something sexy this time. And so I jumped on the luxury brand. And also at the time, you know, we, we had to distill in a small way. We couldn't buy a lot of bottles at a time. So our pricing was quite high. And we sort of set the price, actually, at that time. I remember the retailers saying to me, you, you're completely mad. No one's going to be buying gin at 400 rand a bottle. And that was when, you know, the other brands like the Gordons and the, the beef eaters that we know and love were we're sitting at sort of 150 rand. So they really thought I was quite mad. And I said to them, watch the space. And now that, you know, everyone expects a craft gin to be in the 350 to 400 rand price point. So it changed the category completely. What's the real difference between a craft gin and a regular old gin that was around before? So I think the, the mass distilling of some of the big brands, you know, they can't put the care and the love into it. It's big machinery, big distilleries. They don't use plant materials like we do. And, and the skill comes in the distiller. So the distiller's function is to know when to choose the best piece of the distillation. And so um, that, that really is the craft of the distiller. Whereas on the big brands, they really put a, a presser button and the machine runs. And so this is this is the kind of love and care and bespokeness that craft gin offers. I'm not a big believer in the word craft, and I think it's one of those words like the word natural became, uh, you know, we couldn't put natural on products anymore. I think craft's a little bit of a, a fuzzy one uh, because there's a lot of gins out there calling themselves craft when they're not. Now, you told me when I spoke to you the other day about influence of your grandfather in this whole venture of yours. Yes. So when I started heading off in this direction, I always wanted to use my surname. And because my grandfather's story is, is such a rich one, and I think it has so many uh, stories, it also has a path for which to build my botanical story, and which is, of course, what Jin's all about. So the story of my grandfather is he was a 19-year-old boy. He lived in Plymouth, and some speak about Plymouth as the home of Jin in the U.K., and he decided he was a carpenter, young, uh, talented carpenter, but decided he wanted an adventure and decided to be a missionary. He could have chose India or Africa, but he got in a boat with his wife, my grandmother, and headed off to Africa as a missionary. And so he landed in Dar es Salaam. Uh, at that time, there was a, a pandemic on the boat, and they wouldn't let them off. There was a measles outbreak, and he said, absolutely no. He's had enough. He's been nauseous for three months. And him and my grandmother and my father, nine months, were pushed out the porthole. And his first chapter in his book was, We Arrived in Africa as Illegal Immigrants. And then he spent 30 years adventuring through uh, East Africa mostly. And he wrote a book of all his stories. And some were being chased by elephants to get groceries. Others were building houses in the middle of nowhere. And so I thought it was such a rich story to tell. We then followed his journey and found botanicals in all the places that he spent time. And so Musgrave is a, is a story of, of the African spice route, I guess, more than perhaps a Feinbos story, which a lot of gins uh, speak of. 
So you were very brave. You left a job where you knew you were going to be retrenched, which is always a good motivation, and you went off on your own. Did you finance yourself? How did you start the business? Yes, I heard I was going to be retrenched, and I was sort of ready for it. I'd, I'd spent 13 years in FMCG product development and innovation. And although I couldn't have done what I've done now without that experience, I really was ready to take the next step. So my retrenchment was, unbeknown to me, a bit of a gift. And while, you know, I didn't know when it would happen, so I went off and I I was always looking at trends and I was doing a lot of trend analysis for the business and saw this gin trend. I looked at the craft space and thought, oh, you know, I'm a bit bored. Let me do something. I said to my boss, do you mind if I make gin on the side? And he was like, cool, it's fine. Shame, bless, let her do that. And I started in six months I'd launched and I really used my bond, (laughs) money that was in my bond because I didn't have to build a distillery. I found someone to make it. I bought a thousand bottles. Uh, The biggest chunk of money was really on the brand development. And I bought really enough just to sell a thousand bottles. Because I wasn't investing in a big building or a packaging house or a bottling plant, I was outsourcing everything. The investment was was really quite low. And for 100,000 rand, I I managed to put a thousand bottles together and a brand. And off I went. I walked the streets with gin in my handbag. And and when I had a launch and sold half of the stock, I panicked because I had to get another thousand bottles, which takes six weeks from France. And so it really happened very, very quickly. Um, so I, I did it bit by bit. As I sold, I bought more and so built up. Fantastic. So you walked the streets of where? Cape Town? I did, where I live. And I thought, let me start where all the clubs and bars and restaurants are. And people were starting to hear about gin, but they were a bit suspicious at this big price I was asking. So I just tried to do tastings, tell the story, and people gave me a break. And slowly but surely, the gin trend assisted the tasting of the consumer. And so it went absolutely within a year, um, I was ready to launch Pink. So it was such a quick journey. I I, I sometimes wish I'd written some notes down because it really did go very quickly. Um, And the trend, global trend helped that. That's very brave. So what advice would you give to someone who wanted to start something on their own? I would say don't go too flashy too quickly. You know, don't worry about the office and the desk and spend the money where it really matters. For me, it was about developing a brand and the brand's the thing I have today and really just do it slowly um, taking out big loans you know I've never had a loan once in my business and that has really put me in in a good position so I think the risk is always people think you need a lot of money to do something but actually it's about getting up every morning and doing something that matters absolutely so tell me about the pink gym then you went you launched the pink gym what a year after you started Yes, and I was still employed, still hadn't been retrenched, which was now becoming a bit of a problem because I was I was moonlighting properly. But I always wanted to launch a pink, and for me the pink was a memory that I had as a child. So growing up, a lot of our holidays were Zimbabwe and Zambia, when my parents' businesses were up there. And I always remember my parents ordering a pink gin at sunset time. And, of course, in those days it was the, the Angostura bitters. So pink for me, I wanted it to be a bit more modern, and I brought my trend analysis into it, and I saw that floral flavors with a a new trend, and I wanted it to be beautiful. I wanted to disrupt the spirit category and and say, you know, women can buy spirits. We empowered, you know, we actually do the shopping anyway. I wanted to put something on the spirits counter that was beautiful, and I didn't see anything that appealed to me in that way. So for me, pink was my story, whereas the original one was based on my grandfather's story. And my love of roses and perfume really influenced the 
the, the decision on how that product looked. So now that you've established yourself in South Africa, what size are you in South Africa? Where do you slot in in terms of market share? So without having spent any money doing a, a, a big analysis, we get, we get our information essentially from our retail partners. And Musgrave sits sort of in the top five. So you've got your big internationals in one, two, and three. And then you know there's two of us in the local market that sit in the top. And, the, and on, that's on our pink. And so we're very proud of, of being you know, up there with the guys spending huge marketing budgets. But there is a, there is a support for local, and, and we see that in those numbers. And how do you promote it apart from sort of stock pressure and stuff like that? I mean, do you use digital media? What, what media do you use? Yeah, so we, you know, having no money and no budget, we, we really went for social media as our key messaging platform. We were obviously very lucky to get a lot of free PR in the last five years because we have a story to tell. The product is pretty. So we asked for a lot for free. Uh, but our, our approach was really to get to build a tribe of people who loved Musgrave. And I think we've done that. And our tribe is so diverse. And they are our voice. Um, people started to wear clothes that were flowery like Musgrave. Uh, they sent us pictures. They really understood the association with luxury brands, with fashion. And so we started to build this conversation in the social media. Of course, we did do events as well. We had our own events, and those always were curated with just the right music, just the right look, just the right decor. So for us, it's more about a lifestyle brand than it is necessarily a gin brand. And and we've gone into other spirits because of that. Exports? Do you export the stuff? Yes, we export to about 18 countries. Um, My proudest moment was when we got a cocktail on the Four Seasons menu in New York. Uh, But as far as uh, Nigeria to uh, Europe to Taiwan to the US, and and interestingly, every single one of those exports have come to us. We haven't gone to find them. And that's really been through social media. That's incredible. And tell us about your innovations because you've got some new product. I see you moved into Potstill Brandy. Yes, that's been an interesting journey. We we are certainly not on my radar, but I was approached by a brandy house that said, you know, we want to do an innovative job on the top end of brandy because over the years, brandy's losing a million liters a year, and it's really become a bit of a, a bad rep drink. Um, it's a bar fight drink, or it's only men in smoky uh, rooms drink it. And so I looked at this and I thought, well, I don't know, but, but it doesn't make sense to me. I don't even drink it. But when I started to unpack it, it, there's some absolutely beautiful juice in South Africa. It's truly rooted in the history of South Africa. And so it it fitted the story. But of course, I wanted to disrupt the space and make it relevant to women. So bringing women into brandy and new drinkers into brandy and appreciating this this beautiful liquid. So we we knew it's only a year, but we're finding some really uh, great traction uh, after a year and without putting much behind it except social media. What does pot still mean? What's the difference between pot still and the regular Odomester, if you know them? So pot still is 100% distilled and not blended with any wine spirit. So most of the, the, the sort of cheaper end brandies only have a 30% brandy content and the rest is a wine spirit. So pot still brandy is 100% distilled aged brandy. It has to be a minimum of three years old, whereas, for example, cognac can sell after two years. So it makes South African brandy quite special. Um, interestingly, South African brandy is one of the best brandy in the world for the last 10 years, above any cognac. 
And so it's a really undervalued product. That's very interesting to hear because I heard that rum was the up-and-coming liquor uh, of choice. Uh, yes, and it's certainly been spoken about a lot, but we're not really seeing the numbers. So it's it's a small category, and it's quite for me, rum is quite marginalizing, although I've tasted some incredible rums that are aged. Essentially, rum makes your skin smell, <laughs> and so um, it's a hard one to convince people to drink a lot of. But let's let's watch it and see. Maybe we enter into rum in the future. Who knows? So has brandy's decline flattened out? Is it is it uh, is this market share leveling out? It's a slow journey. So the 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 work needs to be done in the brand space, um, where the innovation and the excitement needs to come from brand. The cognac brands really have done a good job on that. So although our, in South Africa, there's a brand that sells a ton of cognac, and it's really because the brand is so sexy that that, that is why it's selling. So I think a lot of work needs to be done on the top end of, of brandy in, from a brand point of view in order to gain uh, growth. Well, very interesting. Well, let's talk about you as a person. Uh, let's go behind your mask, so to speak. What do you do for fun? Um, so I work a lot, <laughs> but no, I do. Um, I love mountain climbing. So um, I got an opportunity to climb Kilimanjaro 10 years ago now. And since then, I've been absolutely excited about mountain climbing. So I've, I've done a bit of the Himalayas. And whenever I get a chance, I'm on the mountains in Cape Town. And I hope one day I can have more time to explore some other countries in their mountains. I love the beach. Um, I have two daughters, uh, 21 and 23, who I spend time with. And and essentially, if I can be outdoors and in nature, that's where I'm happiest. So you're generally very adventurous. And you've been adventurous about starting a brand. You've been adventurous with with your life. What scares you? I guess um, my next step, you know, where where do I take my scrove? Um, And I think within the climate we've had recently, I've probably felt the most scared ever. I think this alcohol world is a tough one. Um, it always has been tough. I think it's going to get tougher. Um, essentially, and I've always built Musgrave to sell it. So if that happens, you know, what do I do next? And I've got a few little projects I'm exploring. But because I'm such a workaholic, I think that um, what scares me is probably doing nothing. Have you had anybody wanting to buy your, your brand? We have had some interest, yes, and it's certainly a journey that we're on. And, you know, I always say that in order to make this the big luxury brand that that leaves a legacy behind, I probably need a big partner behind me now. It's hard in as a, in alcohol distribution to, to make a difference um, if you don't have that eventually. So that would certainly be the next step. Well, I think you've done a fantastic job and well done. So... It's clear Suman used her innovative skills, followed her passion, and left a lot of us tickled pink. That's a bad joke, by the way. But as Oprah says, follow your passion and it will lead to your purpose. Thanks for listening to Market Share with me, Reg Lascaris. I'll be back soon with another episode giving my take on brands and companies, big and small, in South Africa and elsewhere. So chat soon. Cheers. Cliffcentral.com